So that's a that's a vague, broad term uh, that describes a lot of different types of technological automated medical systems that you know are in a medical bay of some time that do different types of automated medical procedures. Uh, the specific type of technology that we were using was called uh, Holobed, so holographic cellular regenerator. So it uses exclusively a technology which uh, tells your cells through a holographic projection of a perfect version of your cells to repair to a perfect state. And your body just kind of follows along actually. So you actually do most of the repair yourself. You just do it at the sort of telling of the hologram that can tell you your body and fool yourselves into thinking they can do it. So mo most of what happens with cell regeneration is that when your good cells come up to damaged tissue, there's only a certain amount of damaged tissue that the cells think they can repair based on how damaged the cell is. And it turns out that if you fool the cells into thinking that the cells are already good, then they'll repair them into a perfect state without thinking that there's any limitation. So it's oddly enough, it's an attitude that nuclei have based on a person's understanding of how their body works. So you have to fool the attitude of the nuclei to get it to work, but it works perfectly. It just gets your body to repair itself using a holographic pattern. You're listening to Exopolitics Today with Dr. Michael Sala your source for the uncensored truth regarding the human, extraterrestrial, global, and political agenda. Click the like button and subscribe to this channel. And now, here's Dr. Michael Sala. Well, it's my pleasure to welcome Randy Kramer to the show. I first interviewed Randy in 2014, and the last interview we did was in 2015. So it's been seven years, Randy. That's quite a long time. Been a minute, yeah. Good to see you, Michael. Thanks for having me. Yes, well, I, I know there's a lot that's happened, but for people who don't know too much about you, I thought maybe we could just kind of go over how I got to know about you and do those early interviews and, and what happened and what you described experiencing. So our first contact was in, uh, actually, I, I dug it up. It was uh, an email you sent me on February 21st, 2014, and you talked about being a member of the U.S. Marine Corps Special Section. So I hadn't heard anything about that at the time. And you, you mentioned something about President Eisenhower setting that up. So, so why don't you tell us first about what was this U.S. Marine Corps or is this Marine Corps Special Section and President Eisenhower's role in that? Sure. Uh, for people who aren't familiar with the story, uh, in the late 1950s, President Eisenhower uh, was getting stonewalled by the MJ-12 committee and sent over a request to say, hey, I need to get briefed on this. And they were like, nah. And then he sent his Secretary of Defense over to kick him for a minute. And they were like, sure. And they gave him a piece of crap and that he knew it was a piece of crap. Uh, and he made the kind of threat of like, you tell him, you know, I want something on my desk next week or I'll go kick in the door down at, you know, S4 or whatever and take that crap for myself with the first army division or whatever he said, something to that effect. <clears throat> and again, he got a whitewash report that he was not happy with and he was not satisfied uh, with being left out of the loop. So he figured the only and best way that he could be in the loop was to create an agency whose job it was to be in the loop and uh, made of military personnel who would be 
hopefully central in the intelligence gathering and processing part of it so that they would be able to centralize information, technological development and so forth with a clear set of criteria uh, that he felt, you know, as he gave in the speech uh, at the end of his career, at the end of his presidency, sorry, warning of the military industrial com complex. He understood that what was happening between the special study groups and industry and covert military programs that it was getting out of hand as far as the unethical corrupt behavior. So he was hoping to create something that over time would be some kind of bulwark against what he thought was a tendency to go in a wrong direction uh, with the whole process. So he put that into play at sort of late 1953 timeframe, called a bunch of his old friends, uh, senior officers together to create a special branch of the United States Marine Corps uh, that they would just call United States Marine Corps Special Section, which would be its own particular branch that was designed to be specifically inserted into covert military space program affairs as its only mission. So he'd hoped that that would work out. It took a minute, but it's kind of worked out. Well, I know there have been several people that over the years have talked about President Eisenhower being very unhappy with the way the extraterrestrial issue was being controlled and run by the MJ-12 group. And I, I know that I had one insider come forward, Michael Gerloff, who worked with, uh, who was an actu actually did go through, uh, did serve with the US Marine Corps. And he talked also about this special section. So others have talked about it, and, but you were the first to come out and Correct. discuss that. Now, also an, another thing that you were the first to come out and discuss was uh, your time on Lunar Operations Command. Right. Uh, you revealed that there was this base on the far side of the moon and that you were taken there when you were 17 years old at the end of a training period called Operation Moonshadow, which you served on, well, which you actually were over a 17-year period, or sorry, an 11-year period, you were trained. And then at 17 years old, you're taken to Lunar Operations Command and your 20-year and back begins. So why don't you just kind of like summarize what happened with Operation Moon Shadow and when you were taken up to Lunar Operations Command? Sure. So um, I, I suppose it's important to say that... Um, when Operation Moon Shadow was conceived in about the mid-1960s, uh, there were other programs at the time that were dedicated to the process of augmenting soldiers. And the augmentation process at that time was very crude uh, and was using a lot of MK Ultra style, you know, let's break, break, break and separate in order to utilize different compartments of the personality uh, so that it's secure and secret and all that crap. But uh, we had a lot of paperwork numbers showing that it was a lot of money and time spent for not very much return uh, because the lifespan of such personnel was very short. Uh, they had a lot of problems and collateral damage was a problem and they were not very reliable and they did not last a very long time in the field. And so from a very practical point of view, which really was centered from a very ethical point of view that we felt that what was happening was very unethical and that the results of that were bad because you were starting with an unethical process. So we felt that 
to present an idea of here's a more ethical way to do this so that you don't have to just shatter a person's brain into 20 different parts uh, and you can create a compartment that's secure and safe but stable and you know so that it's secret and secure and whatnot without having to destroy the individual unit itself getting a longer lifespan and better bang for your buck because when you're senior brass talking to other senior brass you have to talk about bang for buck and quality and use over time and so forth uh because just trying to bring up an ethical consideration when everyone as far as they're concerned is doing things because they think that the very well-being and survival of human civilization on planet earth is a threat until we understand this technology and can defend ourselves from someone who at that point could easily walk over us if they chose to militarily uh, invade, in which we had no practical defense at that point other than some nuclear weapons. But we didn't have the know-how to do that. And so the people who wanted to make sure we developed and got that know-how the quickest possible, uh, you had to bring a conversation in that was about nuts and bolts uh, for them to, it, to appeal to them. But it didn't appeal to them very much anyway. But we decided we were going a whole nother direction, which was instead of smashing a person to bits, uh, using a different method uh, that was not about smashing the brain. We sort of broke it down into a basic, what we call the sort of MK ultra style trauma-based mind control as an against the grain, to go sort of against the grain of the human psyche to do that way. Whereas to go with something that was more with the grain of the human psyche, uh, which was more ethical and more economical. So that was really the whole basis of the beginning of the program. And I was one of 300 subjects uh, that started that program. And it was the first of many programs that would, we would do after that, that were about not breaking people's brains uh, and also putting in mechanisms to self-repair so that we know that when they're gonna get done with their tour of duty and come back, we want them to have tools to repair themselves, repair their brains, repair their psyches from any of the damage that was done. Because again, you don't wanna just use someone up and toss them out and say, bye-bye, you're trash now. That's not a very nice way to treat your soldiers and your personnel if you have a sense of ethics about it. So that, that was basically the beginning of that. And so I was in, built, I, I say, you know, engineered at the Petri dish level, uh, inserted, you know, back into my mother's womb with whatever additions and augmentations they made, born, trained um, at night while everyone's sleeping. Now there's some of that training is actually physically they take you away. Some of it is implant driven so that you have a virtual experience that's as real as any other experience that you would need to have for the purposes of learning or training some things. If you really need kinesthetic memory, sometimes they really need to have you physically present for that. But for a lot of informational training, it's a virtual experience that you think you're fully physically present for, but you're just mentally present for. Um, but it's a combination of both over years until you get to about 17 and then it's deployment time. And so that was when we, I was deployed first, which was TR-3B from somewhere in the Southwest to Luna Operations Command, put on a bigger transport, like a five stories, huge thing that was super shiny and reflective. Uh, had probably a few thousand personnel they could stack onto it. Flew that off of Luna Operations Command, went through a jump gate, and then came out in the orbit of Mars, landed on the tarmac, and began my 17-year career there. That's that story. Well, during the, the training for Operation um, Moonshadow, th there was one incident that kind of stood out for me 
during our first interview. And, and for people that want to go to those original interviews, I'll put a description um, in the, uh, I'll put a link in the description to this interview. So that way you can go and listen to that original interview where we talk about Operation Moonshadow. Now you describe at 13 years old being taken to an area where uh, special forces personnel were being trained and you were, you were part of you know, a group of, I guess, preteens and teenagers that right. were just dropped off and and you and and the special forces guys kind of looked at you guys and thought, well, you know, what are these kids doing here? And so, why don't you explain what what happened and what abilities you had? Um, so at that point in the training, you're still very young, but you know the augmentations mean that you're a little faster, you're a little stronger, you shoot a little better, you've got quicker reaction times. So you know, as a teenager at you know late adolescent with a group of adult men becomes pretty apparent that you're not just, you know, a teenage kid, you know, out to try and figure out what's going on, that you're a completely competent and capable, capable soldier uh, that with a few more years of maturity is going to be a super duper killing machine. So, but it, they really wanted us to get just as much field experience, uh, practical field in field experience in before we were actually sent to a deployment into an exotic zone, which the so and anything that was an exotic zone or an exotic encounter is just a code word for extraterrestrial being on an alien world running into an alien if they say we're practicing for exotic targets today that means we're going to be practicing with actual targets that look like they're aliens uh, versus standard targets or you know there, there are different qualifications for what you're doing but there's a very specific training to mentally be prepared for encountering another biological organism that's not human. Because it's shocking the first time and you have to get used to it uh, to be able to you know, be deployable into a situation where you're gonna run into who knows what. So during that incident, uh, and that was you know, when you're 13, did you or the other kids in that group display psychic abilities, psionic abilities that were kind of used in what you were doing? Um, sure, it's certainly the ability to know which like directional, where we're going, where we're headed, the ability to kind of psionically compass point to something. So sometimes, uh, or most of the time, they would have one of the kids go up front and say, okay, uh, lead us to where we're going and we're going towards this, and go, okay, and you just kind of, imagine where you're going in your brain and your body tunes into a like a compass and it just points you in the right direction and you just walk and it just you turn left when you turn left right when you need to turn right and just keep going forward until you arrive at the destination so stuff like that um certainly the ability to sense objects or targets far away in the brush you know being able to sort of see through vegetation uh, and sometimes even solid rock depending on what augmentations uh, that they're using. I know someone who has an augmentation that connects to satellites. So he gets to see anything that a satellite can see, you know, behind a rock, inside a building, and it transmits right up and back into his brain. And he like sees this, you know, X-ray effect of anything, but it's a, it's a direct backfeed from the satellites. That's not my particular way of doing it but there's a number of different ways. They test all kinds of different methods and technologies. Uh, mine is pretty just direct psionic and just being able to 
see the mind of the thing that I'm looking for. So I don't necessarily look for the object, I look for the mind. And mind is a lot easier to detect than a physical person if, in the particular way that I learned how to do it anyway. Okay, well, I ask because I know that uh, the very first person who, who wrote about the 20 back program was Michael Ralph. And, and his testimony was in uh, two books uh, called The Mars Records. And he talked about him being deployed to Mars for 20 years and that his main uh, task was to, to use psychic abilities. And he, and he, and he, dis, he distinguished between different levels. Uh, there was mm -hmm. the, the remote viewing, then there was the remote influencing, and then there was the psychic assassinations. And so, mm -hmm. you know, that was what he was trained in. And so that, sure. so he says he was taken there in 1976 and so for 20 years on Mars. So, you know, I, I don't remember him talking about actually being trained as a, as a child or as an adolescent for those psychic abilities. So, I mean, for someone like him or someone like you, you know, where did that training happen? Uh, that really depends. So whether they're starting you at a young age when you're a kid or whether they bring you into a program at a late teen, early adult when people are already in the military sometimes. So where they're drawing from personnel will depend on where that person's going to get funneled to what kind of teaching or academic program based on their age and their experience level and what else has been augmented or so forth. So augmented kids who start out when they're kids and who are augmented are going to be a certain type of training program because they're going to develop at a certain rate. You're going to be able to train them at a certain rate. Uh, adults who are like already in the military and get recruited out of the military are going to have to pass. The reason I'm sure he got recruited is he passed an aptitude exam that he probably didn't even know that he took. Uh, and then, you know, based on that, they were like, oh, he's recruitable. And at an adult age, um, often they find that they can pick one or two or sometimes even three abilities and work with them one-on-one -on -one and have an experienced psionic specialist teach it to them in a pretty short period of time and have them sort of actively learning on the job or doing it on the job pretty quickly if they already have some aptitude. So if you've got someone who has aptitude um, and you have a one-on-one -on -one person giving them training as they're already an adult, it could only maybe take a matter of weeks or a few months uh, for them to be fully like field capable at one psionic ability like a, a one professional psionic specialist teaching someone new one-on-one -on -one in a program could get them competently remote viewing within 60 days so it doesn't take long if, if you're if you're if you've got someone again that's aptitude and an adult when you're working with kids it's a slower process so you're teaching them like simpler concepts slower over time and it takes a little longer before you want to introduce the more complicated concepts, but you means you're really focusing on the fundamentals when they're younger. So they tend to have a stronger, more well-rounded aptitude because of that reason. But it, you got to wait until they're a little older before you can start teaching them adult level stuff. An adult who has aptitude, you can start teaching them right away. Okay. So after all the training, after going up to Lunar Operations Command and and signing contracts and, and being told that you are going to become a Marine with a, a contingent that's based on, on Mars, you, you're, you're taken to Mars. And I think you, you were stationed at Forward Operation Zebra. So why don't you tell us about your time on Mars where you were 
working as a, I guess, a, a Marine protecting these corporations. Right, uh, Forward Station Zebra, uh, as my understanding of the map layout that we got to look out, which was really only a grid, you know, that went from here to here and from here to here, whatever distance that was covering. So we didn't see anything off the map that was too far to the right or too far to the left or too far south, but everything north was, you know, uh, considered enemy territory, uh, you know, open or enemy territory. So we were the most northern posted base at that position on that square of the map at the time. So um, yeah, we saw a lot of action for sure up there. So allegedly uh, behind us to the south, uh, however many clicks there are behind that, they're supposed to be the colonies that we were protecting. I always say supposed to be because I know they're there. I know people who've been there. I have plenty of data to absolutely support and be certain of that. But at the time when I was a soldier, we never got to see it. We never got to visit it. We just got told it existed and had to just believe, you know, that it was there. So I have no certainty from the point south of where we were, where we're talking about that the colonies would be, how far to the east, how far to the west, how far south. I have absolutely no clue or no idea because I was never privy to the way that map looked. But allegedly, somewhere behind us down south were the sort of circled around um, colonies in which the military zone that supposedly circled all of that, there was a Northern, Eastern, Southern and Western front to, we were at the northernmost position of the Northern front uh, were the colonies and that we were supposed to basically protect them from whatever would be coming at them from the outside, which, you know, uh, there's beasties and there's some civilized species that you know, we obviously got into kerfuffles with. So um, it's, a, it's a big question to say whether we really showed up somewhere in a, a, as foreigners and started a fight or the, whether we just showed up into a neighborhood that was already like run by gangs fighting each other and that we just injected ourselves into the further sort of gang turf war uh, taking place on Mars which I think it's more the latter than it is the former. If there was a civilized society that was structurally contained and planet-wide, then I would say that it would be more like an invasion. But we showed up into a completely chaotic situation and just inserted ourselves and said, okay, now we're in this chaotic situation too. But that situation was a lot of people just already fighting with each other. So we didn't go there and invade or start a war. We just inserted ourselves into what was already quite a fierce land gang war amongst all of the tribes and different groups that live there already and compete with each other. Reptoids uh, are not cohesive. They still super competitive. So most of the tribes super compete with each other still and fight each other all the time. Insectoids plus another alleged couple of species. And again, I say alleged, I'm fully aware of their existence and have read the files and so forth, but I personally never run into them or seen them. So, you know, I, I consider that just the difference between what I saw and what I absolutely experienced and what I only know existed or was happening on paper, just making that distinction. So, so during your time on Mars, with the Mars Defense Force for, for 17 years, you, you're there at Forward Station Zebra, protecting the five colonies that you were aware of. You were only ever, you only saw Ares Prime, the main colony, when you went right. up there initially. Right. And after that, you, you'd only kind of like observe them and but couldn't go inside so what yeah in my entire time there i believe there were only maybe 
two other trips that I took to MDF headquarters. But again, I don't consider that visiting the colonies when you fly into Aries Primus and visit MDF headquarters and then you know you leave again and you don't ever get to see or do anything outside literally a one square mile area. But yeah, the only two times that I'd ever been back to HQ was a couple times throughout a 17 year period. Well, you know, this, this raises several questions. One is, I mean, the, a number of people have talked about the, the Nazis or, the, or the, the Fourth Reich, if you want to call it that, having set up bases on Mars, that they have first set up bases in Antarctica and then they relocated to Mars in the kind of late 40s, early 50s, and, and they had established colonies there. So, you know, given what, what you experienced and what you've learned, is it these four bases or five bases there, were they in any way um, controlled or populated by these forthright Nazis or were, or were they a separate element altogether? My understanding that one of them was, uh, my understanding is that after World War II, uh, Nazis went to Antarctica, et cetera, and had a little kerfuffle. They didn't end World War II. So there was a sort of continuation of covert World War II that continued until there was a peace agreement. And the peace agreement was to enter them into the United Nations secretly as Neuschwabenland and to become a member of a coalesce of the Karen Earth Defense Force covert space programs. So all of the different countries that had technology, had membership in that, started to collectively work together. And I use the air quotes there because that's a real vague rare area when we say work together it really means um if i if if my right hand over here represents a nazi program and my left hand over here represents a special section program it's like yeah we're all on the same team protecting earth but this arm is completely pursuing its own endeavors and has its own ships and its own personnel and its own training and its own weapons and its own equipment and its own medical technology and this arm also has all of its own separate, completely individual ways of doing things, thinking, organizing, uh, structuring its officer cadre, et cetera. So they're not in any way, shape or form. And they, this is all the global world programs that are sort of at this collective table, right? So there's, you know, maybe at the time, uh, why there's like six colonies, half a dozen uh, countries that could have the time, resources, money, and power to say, we want a colony. So each of the colonies is has a governorship by one of the countries that is the protectorate of that colony of which Neuschwabenland would be one. The United States would be another. Uh, Great Britain would be a third. Russia would be a fourth. Uh, and then I'm vague and not sure what the other couple are for sure. But I know that those countries definitely had like priority to say, we want to have a colony. So the colonies themselves, again, are loosely affiliated, loosely associated. They're, 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 they're corporate colonies, right? Their job is to go there, figure out how to mine minerals, make shit work to produce, to fill up the funnel of a profits of a company that wants to grow bigger into exploration and mining of space and so forth. And each country that has a attachment to each colony has a direct connection to resources, funding, personnel, equipment, so forth. So my understanding of the Neuschwabenland uh, colony is they have been experiencing and started to experience 
problems like economic problems, resource problems, equipment problems, uh, profit problems almost immediately because let's just be honest, um, fascist business models work for a very short period of time and the innate corrupt nature of fascist systems siphons out all of the profits into people's pockets instead of into the bank account of the colony corporation where it should go. And so it's, it's a very failed colony from what I understand, but that's, that's information that goes up to the revolt, which was a few years back now. And so we have very little data still to show us what's happening uh, since the revolt, because most of the colonies now are super isolated, super closed off, and they're continuing to produce materials to meet quotas. But what's happened internally, who's running it, what, what their system of governance is now or organization is all very vague. They, they've seemed to have stopped shooting and blowing each other up over it at, at the moment, but who knows how long that'll last. So I, I know very little though, other than that. So into your 17th year, that which would have been around 2004, you were part of a, a contingent of uh, a thousand soldiers or Marines that were sent off to a mission uh, to a very large cavern and you were supposed to find and destroy uh, some reptilians that were causing problems, but it was an ambush. Mm -hmm. And out of those uh, soldiers, I think only half a dozen or so survived and you were one of the survivors. Maybe three dozen, less than three dozen, if that, somewhere between two and three survivors. I mean, that, that made it onto the medical pad. I'm not sure of, of, of those that even made it onto the medical pad, how many lived or survived. It could have been anywhere from a dozen to a couple of dozen. Okay, so that was uh, the critical incident where your time on Mars came to an end and so you are recuperating in a med bed I guess whatever injuries you you suffered were, were cured by the med bed so you know maybe just describe because I know a lot of people are very interested in med bed technology so what were these med beds capable of um so that's a that's a vague broad term uh that describes a lot of different types of technological automated medical systems that you know are in a medical bay of some time that do different types of automated medical procedures. Uh, the specific type of technology that we were using was called uh, holobed, so holographic cellular regenerator. So it uses exclusively a technology which uh, tells your cells through a holographic projection of a perfect version of your cells to repair to a perfect state. And your body just kind of follows along actually. So you actually do most of the repair yourself. You just do it at the sort of telling of the hologram that can tell you your body and fool yourselves into thinking they can do it. So mo most of what happens with cell regeneration is that when your good cells come up to damaged tissue, there's only a certain amount of damaged tissue that the cells think they can repair based on how damaged the cell is. And it turns out that if you fool the cells into thinking that the cells are already good, then they'll repair them into a perfect state without thinking that there's any limitation. So it's oddly enough, it's an attitude that nuclei have based on a person's understanding of how their body works. So you have to fool the attitude of the nuclei to get it to work, but it works perfectly. It just gets your body to repair itself using a holographic pattern. So you're then taken 
after you recover to or you're given the opportunity to to serve uh, with the air wing or the the space wing of the uh, Earth Defense Force, and so you're then taken to a, uh, officer candidate school at the Lunar Operations Command, and right. and you're trained over several months. Yep. So you want to tell us about your your training to be uh, uh, an officer with the uh, Earth Defense Force. Sure, it was. Um, I want to say it was maybe seven eight months, uh, but it was just learning to fly everything all day every day. So uh, we started with helicopters and then we went to basic fixed wing trainers and then jets uh, and then finally to alien reproduction vehicle uh, technology, you know, hovering anti-gravity vehicles. But we started with basic stuff and worked our way up to the advanced stuff. So they, our flight school was very, very thorough. We learned how to fly everything that was available in the roster of flying vehicles that we have or know of, so that we were as capable as possible to get in the cockpit or flight deck of anything and fly anything. So during those final three years of your 20 and back, you're on the, the Nautilus, which is a, an EDF a cigar-shaped craft about a half a mile long, and, and you're, you're flying these different shaped craft providing escort duties. So, you know, you want to kind of summarize the time you spent on the Nautilus. Sure. Um, most of that I consider glorified guard dog duty because most of it was just running these basic patrol patterns in the, uh, basically the don't go here zones, uh, the no fly zones in the solar system. So there's traffic lanes. If you're military personnel, if you're commercial personnel, if you're diplomatic personnel, and you're coming in or out of the solar system, you are directed to a traffic lane. Uh, and if you are not in that traffic lane and you are anywhere in the no-fly zones, then there's you know someone there to scare you off and bark, 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 bark. Like I said, glorified guard, do, guard dog duty is what it felt like most of the time. Because if you run into someone that's in the no-fly zone, it's usually a single aircraft, single ship, uh, and you just chase them away nine times out of 10. Every once in a while, they set off an EMP or something as they leave and leave you dead in the water for a minute until somebody comes get you, which usually takes about 15 minutes. Um, but mostly that was it. And occasionally um, I would get to go on missions to the Intergalactic Space Station to accompany Ambassadorial Corps because I was the only trained officer with infantry hand-to-hand -hand combat training. And we're humans, we're paranoid. We don't like to go to a diplomatic meeting without a special guy that can kick everybody's ass. So I was the just in case guy, but always to be very clear, this was a completely safe, non-threatening, non-violent environment. There was no risk of any fights ever breaking out. So being the just in case guy really just meant I was a tag along and never got to do anything that I was told I was there to do, which was to protect people in case something happened, but that never happened. So I just got to sit there and sometimes, you know, engage in the conversation, mostly just observe and watch the process and be the fly on the wall of these different diplomatic negotiations, which I have to say are, are some of the most interesting to me personally experiences that I've had to sit through just because it was a, a very colorful place with a lot of colorful people. And I don't just mean visually colorful, but I mean, just mentally, psionically, personality wise where species are coming from 
as a species sometimes and what it means having a conversation with someone who's from a species that just is coming from a really different place than we do. And I'm not saying that without judgment, just it becomes sometimes a really interesting conversation to have with other beings that are both really similar to us. That's a fascinating conversation, figuring out how someone from way over there has these similarities versus wow, this is how different it can be and having a conversation with someone that's so physically, biologically, mentally, emotionally, psychologically different than us that it's a completely different conversation. But um, anyway, it was always fascinating, always fascinating. But, but my job was to be the tough guy that never, ever, ever got to or needed to be the tough guy. So I, I'm not even really sure why I got sent along on those things other than I'm super stoked that I got to go because... It was, it was very, very interesting uh, to sit through some of those. So you're serving with this uh, on the Nautilus and you go into the medical room of the Nautilus, I guess, for some medical uh, treatment for whatever. And you came across this EBE manual. And in that manual, you said it had information about 54 ET species divided into four categories, friendly, neutral, unpredictable, and dangerous. So you want to describe... A little bit about what was what what was known about the different ET visitors at the time. Um, there's not, not much I can say about that because I mean I literally was sitting there on the table while the med technician said, "Wait here a minute, I need to go grab another tool." Walked out of the room to go get the tool. This manual is handbook, really a handbook, is sitting there on the table. I picked it up, started flipping through the pages. It was color coded with a really basic picture with big print sort of basic uh, definitions and explanations of things and um, categories of criteria about just sort of, uh, and obviously this was for medical personnel because it had some things about um, medical words that I'm not too familiar with. So, but things that clearly were about things that you would need to know about their blood, fluids, you know, uh, you know, a, a list of, you can use these as disinfectants, analgesics, you know, do not use these as disinfectants, analgesics, you know, that kind of stuff. So there wasn't much to it uh, other than me flipping through and, you know, before the guy comes back in and says, hey, you're not supposed to look at that, put that down. And I was like, oh, sorry, put it back down. But I, that was about what I observed. I mean, it had 50 plus species in it, had a color code designation, and just a bunch of basic information that centered towards a medical handbook because it's just too much to remember for sure. I, I can't imagine how anybody, even a, a good med student who spent plenty of time trying to learn just about one type of biology could keep all that straight. So it was, looked like it was just a pretty short, quick reference guide uh, in case you were dealing with someone who was of one of those species. So. So I guess you would know, are they friendly? Are they not friendly? Are they sort of hostile? Are they super dangerous? Like these are all things you want to know. And it had just basic stuff in that. It was I, like, so I did really just flip through it in less than a minute and then got told to put it down. But there's not much I can say specifically about that other than that it was a wider variation than I would have thought. Um, there were a lot of humanoid species, people who look like, you know, head, two arms, two legs, ears, eyes that you could sort of recognize, uh, but a surprising number, like half uh, that were just really different. 
really different. Um, uh, what's a good example? Anybody who's ever seen uh, Valerian in the City of a Thousand Planets, the intro scene where they, they meet with all the different aliens and they come in, there's all these different species. It's just kind of like that. There's just like just about everything you could possibly think that could evolve into something has somewhere. And we're talking to them or negotiating or seeing if they got stuff they want to trade. And it, it's fascinating, it's fascinating. But it's yeah, just about, well, basically it's everything. It's everything. So that's the easiest explanation I can give. If you can just about imagine it, it probably exists somewhere because it seems to be just about everything. Well, that EBE manual incident is very interesting because I know uh, Clifford Stone who served with the US Army, he says that in 1979, he came across or was given an EBE manual and he had to memorize it because that was his job as a first responder for the ET crash retrieval operations on Earth. And he said that there were 57 races that was in that manual and he had to learn learn it all for first aid for sure. people that's or ETs that survive a, a crash. So that kind of matches with what you, you saw up there on this uh, Nautilus spacecraft. Well, we know it's a lot more now and that that number has just gone up and up and up and up. But I, I'm sure that number, from what I understand, that number was very small in the 1950s and it just kept growing every decade. And every decade, that number keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And we're well into the hundreds or got near a thousand species that were, you know, doing some kind of trade or negotiation in trade or buying something from it's 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 a lot it just keeps going up and it's just going to keep going up so at the end of your 20 and back uh you are taken to lunar operations command and you are given along with all the others that are finishing their 20 and back and and maybe you can explain that that some officers would re-enlist they would do a second or sure. third 20 and back so can you maybe explain that how some would retire or, or end their servicing. And so you chose to retire. And you, you, the person that gave the farewell speech was uh, Donald Rumsfeld, the former Secretary of Defense. So this was in 2007, and he retired in 2006. So you know, that timeline works that after his official retirement as the Secretary of Defense, he then begins to work more closely with the secret space program. So you yep. want to tell us about Rumsfeld and, and what, what happened at these farewell ceremonies? Um, I mean, it was like a big ballroom, round tables, chairs, people sitting at the chairs, uh, food, drinks, and a low stage with a microphone and people who came up and mostly guys in uniform, you know, giving little speeches and saying thanks a bunch and all that stuff. And it's their opportunity to just, you know, sound gregarious and, and wordy and all that stuff. Uh, but, you know, they had a couple guys, uh, civilian military defense personnel who were not in military uniform, one of which uh, was the only one that I recognized. I didn't recognize who the other guy was. I don't know who he was, uh, was Donald Rumsfeld. And which... I wasn't really paying attention. We were at a table way in the back with a bunch of other guys that were more interested in drinking uh, than paying attention to what he had to say. But, um, you know, he gave some kind of like, 
blah, blah, blah. Thanks for your sacrifice. And thanks to you, all these things can happen and civilization will thrive and continue. And you've ensured the survival of your species, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it was, you know, I felt like empty words to me, to be very honest with you, but you know, it was his opportunity to try and give us a speech and say, thanks. But I don't think we wanted a speech. I think most of us wanted a big fat check when we got back home that we didn't get, but it's okay. That would have helped more. Okay, so your term of service um, ends and, and you go back to Earth and you go through the uh, age regression process. And so you want to just kind of, again, summarize what that age regression process was. Sure. And it's not really an age regression process. Um, they transfer your consciousness from the body that you're in to a younger version, a clone of yourself which then is no longer a clone. If you put the consciousness of a person into a clone body, it ceases to be a clone and it becomes that person It's a person now. So the body itself is not the definition of whether a person is a clone or a real person. The definition of whether a person is a clone or a real person is where is the consciousness? The consciousness is in that vessel. That's the person. That's where the person is. So just to be clear, because I've had somebody ask me about that a few times. Uh, so put me into a younger version of my body, uh, 17 years old reinserted me 15 minutes after I left. So I wake up the next morning, literally remembering a lot of what happened, but like a dream fading, you know, as you're going from your sort of theta wave through your alpha wave back into a beta consciousness experience where I could see it. And I was like, wow, that, that felt like I was dreaming for months and months. And I, as I started to think, Wow, how many months was it? And I kind of started to backtrack what I could see in my brain going back, 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 back. And then the alpha bridge closed up. And then I was like, no, no, I can't remember it now. I don't remember what I was dreaming about, but boy, that sure was weird. So, and I can remember that like it was yesterday. Um, and then because I'm in a younger body back in my bedroom, I'm like, oh, okay. I'd much rather forget all of that and pretend like it never happened anyway. So let's just continue where I left off, uh, which is what everybody does, even though you don't. You don't just continue where you left off because there's a whole bunch of memory, trauma, and other stuff that you got to sort out now that becomes actually becomes your life. You don't get to go back and just do your life over without any consequences. Your life now, when you get back, is sorting out all the crap that you did when you were on your tour so that you don't die and your brain doesn't implode or you don't blow your brains out or some other self-destructive mechanism that happens to a lot of personnel that come back. Very traumatized, they're very messed up, and a lot of them self-destruct, to be honest. Uh, drugs, alcohol, and suicide are the fate of a lot of returning personnel, sadly. It's just the truth. So that age regression now, I remember now, maybe you have to correct me here, but I remember you telling me back in 2014 that you spent I think two weeks or three weeks in some kind of chamber being pumped with pharmaceuticals and that was part of the age regression process so um I honestly don't recall much of that process and there are parts that I wasn't sure what I could completely clearly recall of that experience my understanding of that experience as the best as I understand uh, is there's a transfer process, which takes some time. Uh, and there's a memory process, which also takes some time. And, but you're heavily anesthetized 
during that period. So it's it's a bit of a jumble. So I, I, I if 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 I if I gave a, a jumbled answer of what was running around in my brain up there, that was probably the best I could do at the moment. But I was heavily anesthetized. So uh, my most of what I understand about the process is there's it's it's a slow process, meaning that it you can't quickly extract the consciousness of the person uh, from the body to the new body if you want them to stick and integrate. So you kind of have to do an induced coma of some kind. And then so there's a part that you move the consciousness into another vessel. And then there's another part where you have to literally physically tinker with neural pathways and neural programming to create a layer around the military experience so that when they go back into civilian life, they don't immediately remember or have enough to pieces to put together to do anything with it. So that's my clear understanding of the process at this time. Okay, that, that actually helps, yeah, because that's what I remember you saying the last time that uh, you, you were heavily anesthetized and you were held oh, yeah. in a kind of coma-like condition for an extended period, of a couple of weeks, two, three weeks, and the process happened. But But now that's actually very helpful what you've described because it's not an actual physical age reversal of the body it's just right. the consciousness is tra transferred from one body into a cloned version of yourself and yeah. that, that matches what uh, tony rodriguez says that he recalled as well that sure. again it was a transfer of consciousness not a physical age regression yeah yeah my understanding is that's a lot harder to do and you also are attempting to give that person a clean slate because a lot of trauma is held in the cellular memory. And so you're basically saying, we're doing you a favor by throwing this one away and giving you a clean one because it's probably gonna be less traumatized. How that actually works out is that the energetic memory of the trauma transfers into the new body. So it's whether it's as bad or worse or better, I don't know, I don't have data, like research data on that, but you don't necessarily get the clean slate that you would hope that you would get or someone else might hope that you get. But the goal or the hope is to take the really damaged body, throw it away, give you a fresh undamaged one that's easier to integrate and manage back in your life again, instead of having a, a broken damaged body that you've just made younger again, but is still super traumatized and the central nervous system is still going to be really fucked up and the trauma to the cells are going to be really confused. And it, it's, it's a mess in there for sure. Having had to heal and unravel all the damage, I can tell you, it's just a mess in there uh, when anyway, you're trying to deal with it. So. Tony Rodriguez says that when he was, that the, that the 20 and back began for him when he was 10 years old and that his consciousness was transferred into a clone body at 10 and then then they you know did whatever they had to do so for you you were taken up to Luna operations command at 17 so when was a clone made of you and when was the transfer of consciousness made oh not until i finished my tour so when i finished my tour i came back you know a middle-aged man and put back into a 17 year old clone version of myself okay so, but, but they made that clone of you when you when you first went up there right I mean, uh no my understanding is they can crack a clone out in like less than 48 or 72 hours or something they have a way to accelerate the growth process so it doesn't take 17 years to grow a 17 year old clone it takes a few days from what i understand 
Okay, so you know, if for example you died on Mars, um, you, you you're you're dead. There's not a clone of you in a base somewhere where your consciousness just goes to the clone or goes to the original. Um, my understanding is that myself and many other personnel that our, our DNA was being regularly used in clone programs where they're practicing and experimenting with just clones, clones that they're not transferring consciousness to, but seeing if you can get them to function with a certain amount of cybernetic hardware or heavy conditioning to see if they're useful in any way, shape or form. So I know that there were extra bodies that were out there somewhere, um, but, and I'm, from what I understand about how that works psionically, technically, if I had died and my silver cord was severed from this body so that I couldn't be retrieved back into this body, I could have floated around until I found a clone that they happened to make somewhere and attempt to pop into it. Never had to do that that I'm aware of, um, but my understanding is it's possible. It's possible to do that, but it was never part of the program or the plan, or I was never trained to do that. That's something I sort of learned later in life. Uh, that you could do, but no, I was never trained to do that. And I have no idea how many clones they have made of me over the years or done experiments with, just no idea, probably a lot. Okay, so that was the, the end of your 20 and back in 2007, and you're, you're taken back in time, 1987, and you're 17 again. So you, you recall another 10 years in the secret space program. So how did that happen? So That's new if to me. You, I haven't heard anything about that. Yeah, I haven't really talked about that, to be honest with you, not much. Um, so if this is, you know, zero to 20, um, you know, insert here at the end, 10 more years uh, that was locked in a mental compartment that I was unaware of. So um, after I was on the Nautilus for a few years, I got transferred to another ship, to the Farragut. Uh, the Farragut was a special forces operations and transport ship that had 16 different special forces uh, teams that were specialized in a, one way or another uh, and went around and deployed itself or was deployed as what we often refer to the Swiss army knife of the fleet uh, because you had 16 very different, very specifically specialized special forces teams that could do any number of things um, all right there in one ship. And so it was a rapid deployment to get somewhere, send teams out to do things, and then rapidly deploy usually to another zone to do something else and with other special specialized teams and specified teams. So I was recruited because I was uh, one of the a few pilots who had infantry experience. So they wanted really, really tough experienced veteran soldiers who could also fly themselves. Uh, so they didn't have to be escorted, put on a flown or jump gated that you could put them in their own ships and rapidly insert them and redeploy them into hot zones to retrieve and assassinate high value targets. So our team's job was we were all infantry trained pilots. And so that we could rapidly have these really, really super crazy fast fighters that uh, were like a long tube, a very tiny narrow tube where you're stuck way back into a, a, a super, super way back chair so that it's just so freaking narrow that when you 
come from space into any atmosphere that you can just pierce the atmosphere like an arrow and fly, you know, super fast, super deep uh, into the planetary surface, wherever you need to go. Uh, sometimes without any detection at all, because you're, you don't even register as a blip or creating a heat signature because you penetrate and you fly in so freaking darn fast. So, and then we would go into these hot zones and either retrieve rescue high value targets, or, you know, you got a picture of someone that is, uh, make sure that they have no head when you're done with them so that they can't be rebuilt or regenerated and you know then you're done and so that was basically what we did for better part of 10 years uh the latter 10 years of my career and so yeah I, that was what i did there i i, I mean i i don't know it's it's um i mean i i went through a period where when i had to remember all of this which happened very very quickly over about a five-week period when something triggered something and I spoke to my brigadier about it and was like, oh yeah, okay. I, I suppose it's time to unlock this one. And I was like, what? I thought we'd been through this, that that was everything and there wasn't anything extra. And he was like, yeah, just this one thing. And I'm okay. I, I was not happy to not be told that there was an extra compartment of memory of stuff. But after having remembered it all, I do understand from a top-down perspective why it was put into a compartment. It's not really anything I can talk about, but I get it. I understand it. So as, as much as I was not happy about it, I can understand. Now I'm not mad about it anymore because I get it. But it was it was a rough minute because that was a it was a very very bloody ten years. It was a very bloody 10 years. Um, so saw a lot of action and a lot of crazy places doing a lot of crazy things. And when I say the word crazy, I mean, just using different tools and like updated technologies that, you know, were beyond anything that I had ever thought that we had or could use. And turns out now nah, we got a lot of cool stuff that we use that we just don't tell people about. And the, the deeper you go into special operations, the cooler the tech and tools that people are using. And it does not get, you know, bled down the ranks most of the time. So um, yeah, it was fascinating and super interesting. And I'm, I'm not super sure how much I feel like I want to spend time talking about that because I kind of am in a place in my life where I feel really done talking about my military career and I'm happy to chit chat about it a little bit, but I'm kind of done talking about it. We've moved on to doing other things in my life. So I don't know. I, I finished my book years ago and I think I'm never going to publish it now. So who knows? That's, that's just kind of how I feel about all that at the moment. Okay. Um, you know, maybe just, you know, in finishing that up, I mean, these, these hot zones that you travel to, are we talking about in space or on earth? or? Both? Oh yeah. All over the galaxy all over the galaxy okay all right and and this was uh rescue missions and assassination or yeah rapid rapid insertion uh retrieval termination of high value targets so you either there to pick you up and take you back or there to make sure you were dead and get in there super super quick and fly out super super quick and who was this with? I mean, what, what branch? Was this, uh, again, part of the Solar Warden or Ga uh, Radiant Guardian, I think? 
Uh, or was um, it another at that range? point, I mean, it was it was the equivalent of how you know most special forces in U.S. military uh, services are under the umbrella of Special Operations Command, right? So SOCOM, and so even if you're so if you're a Navy SEAL unit, you still get your orders from SOCOM. If you're a Army Delta unit, you still get your orders from SOCOM. If you're Air Force tactical operations, you still get your orders from SOCOM. So even though they're different branches, SOCOM becomes the branch that deals with all of that. There is a similar uh, special operations command for Earth Defense Force, military forces that deploys special forces from all these different branches and all these different departments, but exclusively deploys them based on a special compartmentalized intelligence that special operations has the need to know and decision on what to deploy where to deal with that intelligence. So when they have a specific problem, they look at the tools that they have and say, what do we have that can solve that problem best? And then they pick the best team to solve that problem and then send them there to solve that problem. Well, I mean, your, your information hasn't changed very much apart aside from that additional 10 years from when we first spoke back in 2014. And I think that's always a very good sign for anyone that's skeptical. And, and I think people sure. can be skeptical about this oh, information, sure. whether it really happens. I would but, be if uh, it hadn't happened to me. I'd say that I've said that many times. If it hadn't happened to me, I would be incredibly skeptical of my own story. So but because it happened to me, I, I get it. And it's not. But I, I never feel bad or pissed off at someone because they want to be skeptical and question you know, my experiences and my story, I get it. It's a crazy fucking story. I, I, I yeah. that's not your, that's not, if you're a regular Joe Jane person, I mean, it's not in your regular experience to think or understand or know what's going on there. So I, I don't blame people for being skeptical. Sure. Totally. Well, you know, as a researcher, you know, one of the things we look at in terms of like assessing uh, witnesses is, you know, how consistent are their stories? And since, since our first interview was in 2000 and, 14 and now it's 2022 that's eight years your, your story hasn't changed it's essentially the same um just how i remember it yeah you just remember so, a little bit more now um that and uh so that's, gotten a little you know, more that's, clear yeah that so that's a very good sign and, yeah. I, and i think it's also important to mention for people who are skeptical that you actually did do a lie detector test and yep. a gaia tv put yep. you through that so do you want to tell us about you know what happened with gaia tv why they oh, put sure. through the lie detector test and the result yeah i'm always happy to give them a plug uh so i'm doing done some episodes uh for cosmic disclosure with gaia and um they a little while back were like hey do you want to do a polygraph and i was like absolutely i want to do a polygraph so i was psyched and we they set it up with a person who was probably the most qualified polygraph examiner in the state of Colorado that I could have gotten, who was a gentleman and his son who are father-son team called Hoff and Hoff of Colorado Springs. Uh, Thomas Hoff is a veteran police officer of the Los Angeles Police Department, detective for like over 20 years, uh, administered polygraph exams for them for over 22 years, uh, has done, administered over 10,000 polygraph exams, and is the uh, president of the Colorado Polygraph Examiners Association, as well as a former Marine. 
So I could not have asked for a more qualified polygraph examiner to give me a polygraph. And for people who don't understand polygraphs, uh, polygraphs are not a stress detector on whether you feel guilty about telling a lie or something. It is autonomic responses, uh, blood, sorry, blood pressure, blood pressure, uh, the dilation of the capillaries on your fingertips, uh, and a couple other things, uh, surf electrotransmission signals on the surface of your skin that are that register when you tell a fiction. So you can tell something that you have no emotional attachment to, no guilt for, like I had an elephant sandwich for breakfast today and it will totally show that you are not telling the truth. So it's, it's not a stress detector. It's not a, I feel bad or guilty about telling this lie. So it's gonna detect me. It is a four autonomic systems in the body that trigger when we tell things that are simply uh, not fact in our fiction that show up. And they also do this test with a baseline. And the baseline is a question that they ask you, which you are supposed to lie to on purpose, because that gives them a baseline of what happens when you tell a lie and how that looks on the test. So I want to say the question uh, that they would ask uh, when I did the test was, have you ever said anything to anyone in anger that you regret it? And since everybody has, uh, including myself, you're supposed to say no. To that answer. It's an obvious lie to a question that everyone, the answer would be yes to. And so uh, that's the baseline question. And the baseline question is repeated like throughout the questions as they repeat the questions. You get asked the questions that they're trying to get you tested on asked multiple times. You get the test question, the baseline question asked multiple times. So you end up with a chart that shows you you know, how flat is the flat line? You know, when we ask them the question, how high is the spike? when we pass the test question. And then you get, um, based on that, you get whether someone is basically telling the truth or not. I was told by uh, Thomas that I aced the test, which means that my lies were a nice sharp peak, like they should be, um, which is the test question. And that every single other question I was asked was an absolute flat line of absolute certain truth. So I am thrilled to have taken the test couldn't have been asked uh, to get someone, a more qualified examiner to give the test and aced it according to him. And he said, anytime, if anybody really has questions about that test or doubts about it, they can contact him. So Hoffenhoff, Colorado Springs, you want to ask questions about the test, you can contact them and talk to them about it. Yeah, that's great because that is objective, independent uh, evidence about yeah. what, what you've been saying and uh, they found that you were telling the truth. And, and, and it's worth pointing out that there's a lot of people out there that are talking about having served in secret space programs, but they haven't undergone a lie detector test and you have. So that's a credit to you. Absolutely. So I, I, I just wanna, sorry, you wanna say something else? No, no, I was just saying, correct, yes, thank you. Yeah, yeah I, I, I think everyone should take polygraphs at this point in my life. I think there's a lot of people out there that should be given and taken polygraphs, but I get it, they're expensive and not everybody, you know, can take, make, give people the opportunity to take them. But I would like to see a stronger vetting of people and uh, who are making claims because I think there's some people who are not being honest and I don't want to point fingers at anybody, but I think there's some people that aren't being honest. And I'd, I'd like to see some screening and vetting of that. 
I agree. I think I think there's too little vetting happening in the kind of exopolitical and the secret space program field. So one of the things that you raised in that email you sent me back in February 2014 was intriguing because I think it relates to what's happening right now. You, you asked me, um, you know, the question was, quote, have any credible witnesses mentioned ARC, Salvation, Lifeboat or Home Free programs? And, and you, you said that you have a ton of information that kind of related to that. And that's kind of relevant today because there are people and one of the witnesses I'm working with and working with, he currently serves with the US Army. So he's active and he says he's gone on a number of missions now to, a, to space arcs, one, one on the moon and one buried under the Atlantic Ocean. So what do you know of these space arcs? Um, that, you know, they're filling up uh, for sure. There, there are a lot of people that are very concerned about what's happening at the moment and are concerned that we might not get through uh, as unscathed as we were hoping to get through this entire event here that's happening. Uh, and that, you know, uh, because Vladimir Putin is a psychotic madman with a death wish, he's going to die before it's ever going to affect him. He's ready to nuke the whole world. And uh, that's dangerous. And everyone's very concerned. So well, I, know very that I know that they're putting bodies in them. They're filling them up. P people are being put in them so that in case, you know, there's something really bad, we've got a contingent of people to take somewhere. Okay. So you're saying these arcs exist? And they're currently being filled up in the in case there's a planetary contingency involving nuclear weapons or whatever. Any of the any of the things that are on the table, uh, which there's a lot of things on the table. There's again, without wanting to go into it, there's a lot of really intense military aggression going around the world where it's not saber rattling, it's not bluffing, it's not game playing like it has been in the past. These people are dead serious about throwing very deadly weapons at their opponents right now uh, for a lot of different reasons. So yes, it's very serious. It is um, you know, one of the things Jay, my witness, my army insider has revealed is that uh, there is a planetary contingency being planned for by certain oh, people. Oh, a number of them. I, I would say that there's a number of them that are on the table and we're just going to kind of get to see how it plays out and whose plans work and what we have to really protect and be prepared for and what we have to clean up, what mess we have to clean up from. So there's just too many variables to say really exactly what's going to happen, but there's a lot of plans and contingencies so that some of somehow uh, the planet and the species are going to be okay. Well, this takes me now to your psionics uh, classes, and I think this is a, a very important area of interest to a lot of people. I mean, how do you develop your psychic abilities? And you call it psionics, so you want to explain yep. that? Yeah, thank you. Um, so I started teaching an in-person class on psionics years ago. Um, after doing a workshop at a conference, after like the first conference I ever did, uh, someone asked me if I wanted to do a workshop and I was like, well, okay. And Julian and I kind of determined that teaching a civilian psionics course would be a good idea. And after teaching kind of a number of in-person classes and figuring out what a curriculum for civilians would look, look like, 
uh, COVID happened and I was about ready to do a couple of in, uh, in-person classes, going to do a series of them. And then that interfered. Uh, and a colleague came along and said, well, why don't you do an online course? And I honestly just hadn't thought about it. The, I just had not occurred to me, too many other things on my brain. And so I was like, oh, that's a pretty good idea. So uh, we set up a beta of an online course last year that we ran through a test curriculum and I did well enough. And also we saw where we wanted to change it and do better with it to start a reboot, a 2.0 version that we started working on about a month ago or getting the first round of production on the lecture videos done for a beginning course, which is now done and complete and starting to look pretty good. We got to go back and fix a few audio video glitches that didn't transfer very properly in the editing process. But anyway, we're very pleased and proud of it. Uh, my partner Kendra and I uh, took essentially the course that I had been working on and had done and a bunch of research that she'd been working on and was thinking about doing a class. And I was like, well, you know, I already have a class. Uh, why don't we just stick it all together and make one big class out of it? So we actually have a plan for to, after the beginning course, to do a little mini manifesting course, to do her emotional healing course, to do the advanced course, which is where I teach all the psionic skill building stuff for advanced students. The beginning course is really just fundamentals and basics of meditation, brainwave, psionic self-defense. Uh, we don't call them chakras. We call them psionic foci, what they do, how they work, why you want to keep them clear. Um, it's, it's a basic, but it's a very thorough fundamental course and in which we're very proud of and we're very we've tested this content in this curriculum long enough now over the last year year and a half that I feel like we, we've done a really good job of presenting clear concise ways of understanding the information and a clear path of here's your step one here's your step two here's your step three so that you start creating a daily meditation practice you start you know creating psionic space you start doing the skill developing stuff and that leads to development all psionic skill development comes from a steady daily process that we we practice ourselves every day and so because we practice it every day when we really sat down to do the course we were like well let's just let's kind of make it simple and step by step telling people here's what we do every day so if you just do this simple, basic stuff every day, you will learn to meditate, you will develop brainwave mastery, you will develop psionic skills, you will develop psionic outputs if you just put the time in. And that's really the essence of what we're teaching is that it's not dogma-based, it's not, it doesn't have anything to do with any spiritual path or religion or any other such thing. It is a purely science-based way of understanding your brain brainwave, meditation states, consciousness states, how that relates to psionic development, and then what you do with that when you are achieving changes in brainwave states that you can do that work in development with. That's a real short version of, you know, sort of what we're teaching and how we're teaching it, but we're super proud of it. We're, we're super proud of it. It's, it's, a, it's been a very thoroughly refined curriculum to make it really straightforward, really simple, take all the bullshit out of it, and make it very clear because you don't have to be a vegan 
or a vegetarian or do be a yoga person to learn to meditate. You don't have to be a dedicated Buddhist, you know, to be on a path of self-mastery. All you have to do is be willing to put some time in to get to know how your own brain and your own mind works to develop the skills by doing daily disciplines. That's the crux of what we're teaching uh, at the University of Conscious Evolution, which is anybody can do this, literally anyone. Beginning courses designed that a 12 year old could go through the curriculum and do it. Um, anyone can do it if you just want to apply some time and some energy. We've taken away all the bull crap and just talk about the science ways in which your brain and your mind build and work and develop and how that leads to the development of psionic skills with a so whole bunch people, of stuff after that so where do people go to find out more about the, the courses or to register yeah um our website which is uh, www.universityofconsciousevolution.com and that has all our information about the courses we do personal consults uh, we have some other stuff coming up interviews links to stuff that we've been doing all there on our website we have a facebook page of the same name that we also repost our stuff on our social media and our instagram and our twitter and so forth but so people can follow us in any one of those ways that they want but if they want all the information that we're providing right now in one place that's on our website they get on our mailing list and then anytime something happens or we're doing something they'll know well, I want to thank you, Randy, for coming on ExoPolitics today and uh, sharing uh, your experiences and your work today. Oh, thank you very much for having me. It's good to see you, Michael. You have been listening to ExoPolitics today with Dr. Michael Sala. Please remember to like, share, and subscribe to this channel. Join or start a conversation in the comments. Take the time to explore the vast library of best-selling books, webinars, and podcasts by Dr. Sala visit exopoliticstoday.com.